You would think that after 50-some years of preaching, preparing and delivering sermons, that I would know how to do this and whatever. But uh, someone asked me to preach a sermon on what is the gospel, and I thought, that's pretty simple. That won't be hard. And then I got started studying on this, trying to figure out what to say and what not to say, and it felt like a huge challenge. And I'm going to try to um, summarize a lot of what I say this morning will be a summary of verses, a summary of sections of Scripture. And in order to do that, I might have to read some, which I hate to do, but uh, that might be the only way we'll get done before one. Um, I'm going to start with a uh, summary of uh, Jesus and John the Baptist, what they said the gospel is. And then I'm going to spend some time with Acts and the epistles, and that will be highly summarized. And then there will be some summary implication applications at the end. So, uh, the closest thing, there's, there is no statement in the New Testament, no verse that says, this, uh, a technical, scientific sort of statement, this is the gospel. The, the closest thing to it is 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, which I will read. Moreover, brethren... I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So these verses say that the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But these verses don't, they do not expand on the meaning of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and they do not explain how a person experiences the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so, where do you find what all that is? So you have to look somewhere else. So the, uh, the Greek word translated gospel, you have notes, some of the, these comments are in your notes. The Greek word translated gospel means good news or message. And so the question is, what is the good news proclaimed by Jesus and the apostles? So I'll start with the gospel according to Jesus and John the Baptist. Uh, so Mark 1, 14 to 15 says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
So here we have it. The gospel is the good news of the kingdom of God, and it's at hand. And what you need to do is repent and believe the gospel. So the good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand, and the kingdom of God means literally the rule or reign of God. And the rule or reign of God is present. It's at hand. And it is at hand because it's near at hand is the idea. It's near at hand because Jesus embodies the kingdom of God. Jesus lived the kingdom of God, proclaimed the kingdom of God. And Jesus was among them. And so it was near at hand. And then the, the statement, the time is fulfilled. That, that's the idea that, that the time for Jesus to come in his body to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, it has arrived, Jesus has arrived in the course of history. Uh, the most obvious, I want to start here with Jesus after that little, he is the gospel. Uh, the most obvious good news or gospel of the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed and lived is that the gospel, the good news, is not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles and all kinds of people. Uh, people with diseases, torments, sicknesses of every kind, outcasts, down and outers, and the worst of sinners. Now, <clears throat> I feel like I need to say all that again because, because this, this is a central message of the New Testament is that the good news is for everybody that has bad news. It's not for people who have gotten it together and, and they just are doing fine. It is for the people that can't get it together and can't do fine. So sometimes we forget that. So I'm, I'm going to give a few examples of this. There are many in the New Testament, in the Gospels. So start with Zacchaeus. I thought about having children's meetings to talk about Zacchaeus, but all the children, listen, okay, it's for adults too. So Zacchaeus is a tax collector for the foreign rulers, Romans, and he is rich because he overcharged. That's how he got rich. He charged way too much, and furthermore, he was very short. He wasn't normal. He didn't look normal. He didn't act normal. He didn't act right. He was a bad man. And, and his fellow Jews did not like him. They despised him. 
He was the kind that you you just avoid, go around, don't pay attention, try not to. Of course, if you did notice him, you kind of look down your nose, yeah, down your nose, because he's shorter. Yeah, for other reasons, too. And he just was not the kind of person anybody wanted to be a friend to. And, and Jesus saw him in the tree, up the tree, so he could see. Yeah, here is this outcast that is trying to see Jesus. And uh, told, Jesus told him, I'm going to come to your house for tea. I don't know if it was tea, but. And then the Jews, his fellow Jews, they all complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner, as if they weren't. But Zacchaeus, when I'm sorry for chuckling a little. I mean, that story does not really say what all went on between Jesus and Zacchaeus, but by the time they got done with tea, Zacchaeus apparently was a changed man. However that happened. And he forsook his evil ways, and he said he was going to clean up his act and quit his overcharging and actually give back a bunch of money that he had taken. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to his house because he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man <clears throat> has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So I, I would ask the children, ask all of us, so what do you say and do? How do you do? How do you act toward, treat people that are different than you? And this, this, is, uh, this is a pretty big point in the New Testament concerning what is the gospel, because the gospel is for people different than you are. It's not just for your kind. So Matthew 4, 23 and 24, Jesus says, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of diseases and all kinds of all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And I, I would just say, um, <clears throat> those of us especially who talk with people very much, uh, we we know we know who the people are that fit in these categories he's talking about, and and um, <clears throat> I just say there's a very fine line between what people call sanity and insanity. There's a very fine line between having a healthy um, emotional and mental and physical state and not having one. And that we are all quite fragile. We don't. We may not know it, but we are. And it doesn't take too much to get in a state like is described here. And Jesus went about caring about all these people that everybody else was trying to avoid. They were. 
because probably they didn't know what to do with them. Then Matthew 8 says, when evening, even, evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He took upon himself our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So the quotation is from Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, which reads, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So I want to say that a basic truth about the gospel, what it is, is that it's the good news that Jesus bore to the cross everything that is wrong with you. Everything. Uh, bodily sickness, mental sickness, emotional sickness, sins committed, shame, guilt. Every single thing that you would say is a malady of humanity. Everything that um, everything that's wrong with people's DNA and everything else. John the doctor can explain all this. I'm just saying all the stuff that is wrong, Jesus bore it to the cross. That's the good news. Now, how do we experience it? That's another thing. And whether it's all experienced in this life is another question. Uh, Luke 4, 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's a quotation from Isaiah 61. So a few more examples quickly. So you have the uh, centurion servant that Jesus healed. And, uh, you know, the problem with that story is that the centurion is a Gentile soldier. And I'll just say, whatever our beliefs about all kinds of things, including going to war and whatever, uh, <clears throat> I don't think, um, well, there's no statement made about what happened to this Gentile soldier after this encounter with Jesus. But I think what I want to say about it is that the same thing I would say about a lot of things that we don't know how to figure out is that maybe we don't need to figure them out. Maybe, maybe God is going to have the last word. Maybe Jesus just does what he does. And uh, we're here in our intellect trying to mentally figure out the answer to many things. And... Uh, and I would just say, when it comes to what is the gospel, I, I, I have spent many years younger, when I was younger, um, 
trying to analyze what the gospel is and what it takes to be saved and all of this. And uh, that, that's, that's one way to have a mental collapse. Okay? Because, because some things are not answered with uh, mental figuring out. Uh, there's more, more to it than that. So the, the centurion servant, and then you have the woman at the well, the half Jew, half Gentile, the down and outer, uh, had seven husbands. None of them were her husbands. Uh, and Luke 7, in the story of the harlot who invaded Simon the Pharisee's party, dinner party, so she could anoint Jesus' feet. How did she know that he would be okay with her? How did she know he would protect her from the sneering Simon? I don't know the answer to that, but Jesus ended up telling her that uh, she is forgiven, go and sin no more. Uh, then you have the woman caught in adultery that Jesus protected and the ten lepers and there's so many more so now we're going to go uh, to the words of Jesus he said that whosoever this is John whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life he that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name, bear with me. He's condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. That's all from John. So the, the words of Jesus here, they focus on the necessity of believing that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the source of life, the one who delivers from condemnation and death. But there's no explanation to how this happens. Jesus says that only those who hear and believe Jesus' words about who he is and believe that the Heavenly Father sent Jesus, will experience eternal life and not be condemned. And those who do not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God will die in their sins under the judgment of God. And so to believe in the name of means to be convinced of the truth about the person, who bears the name, and to trust that person. Both John the Baptist and Jesus mentioned repentance 
as a spiritual reality that a person must experience in order to be a believer. Repentance. And repentance refers to the turning of the mind and heart toward God that accompanies faith, believe, and repent. The two are often placed together. So John the Baptist, in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So <clears throat> to repent is to have a, the technical definition is after mind. To repent is to have an after mind <laughs> or a change of mind about oneself, about one's sin about one's way of living, to turn away from that way and to turn toward God. That's the idea of repent. So uh, first, repentance speaks of sorrow, uh, I'm sorry, speaks of a change of mind or purpose, and second, it speaks of sorrow or sadness or remorse about the effects of one's sin. And third, it speaks of turning away from that and turning toward God and what God wants. That's, that's repentance. It's a turning around the other way. And then in Luke 9, here's another aspect of Jesus' message of the gospel. He says that the person, Luke 9, 23 following, that the person who desires to come after me will need to deny himself, that is, give up on himself and his own way, and take up his cross daily and follow me, uh, even unto death. So these words of Jesus emphasize the need to follow Christ, Christ in obedience to do what he has commanded, to do what he did, to do whatever he wants us to do. And I don't believe he's talking about perfection. He's talking about honest intentions and following. And that Jesus made those kind of statements quite a few times. I won't mention them for the sake of time. Now the gospel according to Acts and the epistles. So, another word besides faith, repentance, uh, uh, faith and repentance, primary ones, is the word regeneration. People use that word today quite a bit, be regenerated. Uh, but actually, it's interesting, the word regeneration appears in the King James only one time in the New Testament. I think twice in the New King James, but only once in relation to salvation. Uh, this is Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us 
through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And uh, the, the word regeneration means uh, again born and refers to the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart that results in a new or cleansed heart. So people do not regenerate themselves. They don't save themselves. This is something the Holy Spirit does in them and for them as they trust, as they believe and repent. Pentecost. Now here's where I'm going to have to read some. Uh, in response to the multitudes who wondered why every man heard them speak in his own tongue, it's Acts 2, 6, Peter preached a gospel message uh, pro proclaiming the miracles of Jesus, Jesus' death according to the will of God at the hands of evil men, and he said, it's your, it was you who did it people he was talking to, and Christ's resurrection from the dead as the Messiah. And so then many were pricked in their hearts when they heard Peter say these things. And they asked, what should we do? And Peter said, this is the gospel, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Repent and believe and be baptized for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And the result of that was many gladly received his word and were baptized, many believers. There were many believers as a result of this simple gospel message. And then immediately following Pentecost, in his explanation of how he and John were able to heal the lame man, Peter says that the Holy One and the Just One, whom ye delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go, this same One, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified, and hath raised him from the dead. And the faith which is by or through him, Jesus, hath given this man who was lame perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So Peter is explaining that it's this Jesus who has healed this man. Peter then invited his hearers to repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And Peter told them that the holy prophets since the world began have foretold these events that would fulfill the covenant, and this is important, that these events that you see here of this man being healed because Jesus was slain and was raised from the dead, and his healing of man. These events would fulfill the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. 
So first of all, a few comments about conversion. What is conversion? So conversion is connected to repentance and expresses the idea of renouncing sin and trusting Christ as Savior and Lord. And uh, this is just my statement. I understand conversion uh, to summarize, the word to summarize the whole of faith, repentance, and regeneration, and not a technical word about one aspect of it. Conversion. It summarizes faith, repentance, and regeneration. So, <clears throat> now a comment about what was going on here. The Jewish religious leaders reacted to Peter's preaching of Christ crucified and risen and denied that these events were the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham. The Jewish rulers denied that Jesus fulfilled the promise to Abraham. And throughout uh, Acts and, well, primarily in Acts, you see it. Almost everywhere Paul went and preached the gospel of Jesus, uh, the Jews reacted to him, especially because he talked about the Gentiles being able to belong to the family of God without becoming Jews, without becoming proselytes, without keeping the law of Moses. This was the big deal. This is uh, Paul's hobby horse. That the gospel, the good news, is that you can become a believer without becoming a Jew. So this is essential to notice that the gospel is this. Uh, you notice the Jewish reaction to any suggestion that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection fulfilled God's promise, God's covenant with Abraham, that in and through Abraham all nations, kindreds, people groups would be blessed, including Gentiles. And this is a foundational of the gospel that God's promise to Abraham that he would be the spiritual father of believers from every nation every tribe or people group was fulfilled when non-Jews when non trust Jesus apart from practicing the law this, this is a huge tenet of the gospel Cornelius. So in Peter's sermon to Cornelius in Acts 10, Peter declared to the Gentile and his household that God is no respecter of persons, that in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him, that the anointed of God and crucified but risen from the dead Jesus commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and dead, that is the living and dead, 
To him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive the remission of sins. Okay. So I now want to say you don't have to analyze that too hard. That's what the Bible says. Whoever believes in Jesus will receive remission of sins, forgiveness of sins. And the result of Peter's proclamation of Jesus was, The Holy Spirit fell on all them which heard the word, and they spoke in tongues in the same way the Jews had spoken in tongues at Pentecost. And there at Cornelius' house, the Jews who were with Peter, Peter had taken some Jews with him from Jerusalem to be witnesses of what was going to happen, which he didn't know what was going to happen. But the Jews that were with Peter were astonished that these Gentiles spoke in tongues. And apparently God had done something in them, to them, for them, while Peter was preaching. And after, afterward, Peter declared them ready for baptism in the name of the Lord. So <clears throat> I, I need to make I feel, a comment about speaking in tongues. So this is my understanding. There are three times in the New Testament where people spoke in tongues when they became believers. Well, I don't know if that's quite technically accurate. Three times people spoke in tongues in the New Testament. The one is Pentecost. The second one is Cornelius here. At Pentecost, they were all Jews. Uh, Cornelius is a Gentile. And the third occasion is at Ephesus in Acts 19, where uh, disciples of John the Baptist who had not heard about uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, when Paul laid hands on them, they spoke in tongues. And the, the, there are other times, too, when people spoke in tongues, New Testament, and primarily Paul. He said, at least said he did, in private. Going on, in Paul's first recorded sermon to Jews and Gentiles in the, in the synagogue at Antioch of Pisidia, Acts 13, Paul recounted how God had worked on behalf of Israel by delivering them from bondage in Egypt, burying them in the wilderness, destroying their enemies in Canaan. I'm just summarizing his sermon giving them judges and kings and raising up a seed of David named Jesus the Savior who was condemned and slain. It's like this is all the gospel. <laughs> Paul presents all of this series of things as the gospel. This is the good news. Paul says that God raised from the dead the same Jesus that was slain and that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So Christ 
life, death, resurrection. It is through him and what he's done, what he's doing, that you can receive remission, forgiveness of sins. Both Jews and religious proselytes, that is Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, were present at the sermon, heard the sermon, and after the Jews departed, the Gentile converts to Judaism requested that Paul preach the next Sabbath. So they had become Jews, and they heard Paul say these things, and now they're wondering, okay, we're Gentiles, and we did these things in order to become a Jew or a proselyte, and what are you saying that wasn't necessary, or what, what the world are you talking about? So they wanted to hear him the next Sunday. Tell us more. What do you mean? But the next Sunday, when almost the whole city came together to hear Paul preach the gospel of Christ, the Jews reacted to Paul and his preaching because Paul said Gentiles can become followers of Jesus and belong to the family of God without keeping the law of Moses. Are you still here? It's not one o'clock. And now I'm at the summit. So this next paragraph I'm going to speak through, read, is an overview of Peter and Paul's preaching of the gospel with no explanation of the mechanics of how a person becomes a believer. It's just an overview of their preaching of the gospel. So the Jews reacted to Peter and Paul's preaching of the, of the gospel message because their message violated the Jews' view that only Jews who are circumcised and keep the Mosaic law can be, can be considered God's family members. There is an attempt by Peter and Paul to demonstrate in their sermons that God has been faithful to his promises to Abraham, David, and Israel. That Jesus Christ fulfills the promise of God to Israel to send the Messiah. And that as the representative of both Jews and Gentiles, Jesus Christ is the redeemer of both. That God's faithfulness to his promises is demonstrated by raising the slain Messiah from the dead. That those who repent... And I have some verses. And believe. More verses. In the faithful God who raised Jesus from the dead. More verses. Or those who believe in Jesus who was raised from the dead. Verses. Will receive remission of sins. Or be saved. Various ways it's said. That all those who believe in Jesus the Messiah, both Jews and Gentiles, will have forgiveness of sins and be justified from all things 
from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Almost all of those verses are taken from Acts. The next paragraph is a summary of what the New Testament says the spiritual realities are that surround salvation. So first, the spiritual realities connected to conversion and justification, salvation, mentioned by John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, and Paul are these. They are faith, repentance, humility, conversion, that one time regeneration is used, forgiveness or remission of sins, baptism, that's a whole other subject, and reception of the Holy Spirit. Those are the words, the spiritual realities connected to justification and conversion. Uh, second, in some situations, the spiritual realities are mentioned without mentioning faith. And that's kind of shocking to me. There are places it talks about, this is the gospel, and it doesn't even mention faith. I'm not sure why. Uh, third, a major theme in the early preaching of the apostles is that the gospel of Jesus Christ fulfills the promise made to Abraham that all people of the earth would be blessed through his seed. And I think his seed means Jesus. Uh, fourth, in Acts 1 through 13, all those chapters, and, and even more prominently in Acts 14 and following, uh, you see the resistance of some Jews to the idea that Gentiles can become people of God and enjoy table fellowship without keeping the law of Moses. There's a lot of resistance to that. Fifth, preaching of the gospel is a context within which faith is birthed. Okay, some summary comments about the gospel. Uh, conversion summarizes the whole of faith, repentance, and regeneration and establishes the believer in a loving, bonded heart union with the risen Christ. That's conversion. Regeneration refers to the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart that results in a new or cleansed heart. And these are actions taken by God. These are not things people can do inside themselves for themselves. And I, I, yeah, I want to say, I think maybe a weakness that we have as Anabaptist Mennonites is we can get really, really focused on what people need to do. And, and people end up feeling a great deal of pressure to work, 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 work at this thing. And uh, they forget that God is the one who's working in them to will and to do, to choose and to do. 
So I'm just saying that God has to be in this. People cannot do this for themselves, by themselves, in themselves. Uh, next thing, faith and repentance are a Holy Spirit's birth response to the word or to the gospel message. That's just saying what I've just said. Yet people do not generate their own faith apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, faith is not a purely human thing, is what I'm saying. Now, I want to make a comment about the connection between faith, repentance, regeneration, and justification. This is more technical statement. The same faith... Uh, it's on, I think, the last point on your notes. Something like this. The same faith and repentance that regenerates necessarily results in justification. You don't have to do something in addition to believe and repent in order to be what is called justified. In other words, the faith and repentance that regenerates cannot not lead to justification. I know that's being technical. It cannot not lead to justification in the same way that one cannot open the door without light entering the dark room. Another point, Abraham's response of faith to God's promises resulted in Abraham not only being justified, Romans 4, yeah, and also Genesis. It, it resulted in Abraham not only being saved or justified, but Abraham being the father of all the faithful, whether Jew or Gentile. And this means that all believers of all time and from all cultures are spiritual descendants of Abraham and belong to the same family. There is only one family of God. We have denominations, different groups, and a lot of splits, and whatever all that is, there is only one family of God. And I don't know what to do about all of that, whatever diversity there is. There is only one family of God. Those of us who have trusted Jesus and repented of our sins have been born again from above, that's what the Bible says, and have experienced the mysterious blowing of the heavenly wind of the Holy Spirit. And uh, those of us who talk with people some and pray with people, whatever, there are a lot of things that happen, at least for me, that I have no idea how they happen. I do not know. And it's good I don't know. I don't have to know. This is part of the blowing of the wind that you don't know where it came from and you don't know where it went, you don't know what happened, but something happened here and it was a good thing. And uh, as I've gotten older, I'm more aware 
that uh, this is a way I need to think about. You don't know how to save anybody. You can present the gospel to them and you can pray for them. And many, many times uh, things are going on in sermons or in conversations or in prayers and we don't know what is going on and uh, people are changed. God changes people. The only way a person can experience the life of Christ in victory over Satan's sin in the world is to be filled by the Holy Spirit and to be under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit. This is the good news. Now my last statement, the Bible nowhere gives a scientific explanation of how the death and resurrection of Christ saves us. Uh, the closest statements to an explanation is Isaiah 53, which I mentioned before, which says that Jesus bore our sins in human condition to the cross. And then New Testament verses that say that through the shed blood of Christ, we have remission of sin.